Welcome to another episode of the Polish Chabot Show. We are focused, as always, on keeping our country strong. Uh, look, as you know, there's evil around the world with what's going on in Israel. Uh, the the folks here in America and Germany and France and other areas that are rooting for evil is disgusting uh, on our college campuses. It's probably one of the most infuriating things we can see as Americans, uh, especially if you're a Jew living in this country to see what's happening in the world. Uh, it is horrific. Uh, so uh, this presentation, this discussion here is really about how to fight evil uh, like Hamas. And uh, as some of you may know, I wrote a book, Eternal Battle Against Evil, which is a nonfiction book, uh, which was based largely on my doctoral dissertation that focused on how to dismantle terror networks like drug cartels. In 2008, I went forward in Iraq during the surge. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this idea, this concept about resiliency and how we can better fight evil. So, all right. So to think about it, when we fight evil, have you ever watched a horror movie, right? And uh, so what happens at the end of almost every single horror movie, right? Just when the good guy or gal believes that they've slain the monster or they've killed that, uh, that Jason, that Freddy, whatever it may be, and they've got him on the ground, right? You know, the good folks turn away because uh, they think they've killed him. And then what happens every single time in these movies Right. You turn away and all of a sudden that evil rises right back up again and sticks a knife right in your back. This is what we're up against in the free world against evil. Look, let me first say we will never defeat evil on our own. That is only God can truly do that. But we sure as hell on earth never should give evil free reign, whether it is in the minds of our kids or their physical terror on human beings. We've always got to stay on target. Otherwise, we don't have a world, we don't have a society, and that is not anything that we would want to see, hope, or pray for. In fact, what we need to do is hope uh, and pray here strong for our allies, which Israel is, as they fight this, surrounded by people that want to see them wiped off from the face of the earth. So let me take you back to this horror movie, right? So remember, you know, fighting evil never ends, that good forces must always stay on target to continue to keep evil on the ground and never, ever walk away. We can't turn our backs. Now, some may say, well, you know, America can't be the world's policeman. Uh, I beg to differ, and I don't like the context of that statement anyway, but I will say this. If not for America, uh, where would the world be? Where would children be? Where would society be? Think about it. Prior to 9-11, prior to uh, Pearl Harbor, even, you know, Americans kind of reverted back to being isolationists, looking more inwards. Um, what happened, though, right after Pearl Harbor? Our country, our populace did a complete 180 from an isolationist nation that was largely providing supplies to Britain, which was, a, you know, on their knees about to fall. Uh, and, and oddly enough, had it not been for Japan bombing Pearl Harbor. Think about it. We declared war on Japan as rightfully as we should have after they bombed us at Pearl Harbor. But then Nazi Germany declared war on us. We declared war on them. We are now in it. Think about it. There, We as a nation um, 
have the blessing to be able to stretch our arms out far and wide and punch evil squarely in the nose wherever we can. We've got to remember that as an isolationist nation, um, there is no good that comes from that. At some point, we will be circled and then potentially overcome. Had we not intervened in World War II, let's think about this for a moment. Think about it. Had we not intervened in World War II and had Japan literally not attacked us at Pearl Harbor, uh, Britain likely would have fallen, right? Everybody else had fallen in Europe. Uh, Nazi Germany was on the march. And what if, you know, what if uh, America did not get in? Well, I guarantee you Britain would have fallen. Okay, let's just be blunt and direct. They would have fallen at some point. You have Japan in the Pacific uh, stretching out uh, their sinister deeds. Now think about it. D-Day was a huge turning point uh, in the war uh, against Nazi Germany. Just like Midway was a huge turning point uh, here for us against Japan in the Pacific. And obviously a few things happened. Uh, Hitler was an idiot to go up and face Russia in the cold where they got devastated and spread their troops thin. But had Britain fallen, there never would have been a D-Day at all. D-Day, we needed to hit those beaches from a free nation of Britain, which was on their heels, getting bombarded and losing planes, losing people to fight, literally, probably short time uh after we were bombed, had we not been bombed in that same time period, we'd be in a different world today. Nazi Hitler would have controlled all of Europe a matter of time. Japan would have continued to conquer Asia. And then think about this. We would have been surrounded on both sides by, a, by regimes that would have set their sights on us. And then we would have been fighting alone, alone, without a footprint, without islands, without, that's how we got back. That's how we were able to strike into Japan is we were able to do island hopping. God bless the Marines and the works that they did with the Navy and continue to get a closer and closer and closer footprint there. And you look at the timeline of uh, when the bomb was made, would we have gotten there? Have you ever seen the the series called The Man in the High Castle? If not, it's phenomenal. I watched about six years ago. Uh, it, it portrays what the world could have looked like had uh, Nazi Germany and Japan won. All right, so let's let's go forward here now into today's times. It's it, critical that we have a strong American presence. Largely, wherever America has a presence, the world is peaceful. I'll give you, the Middle East is a hell basket uh, of radical ideology that um, the large you probably will never see peace. However, when you look at what America has done around the globe with South Korea, right? With Japan, with Germany after World War II, we have a strong military presence. The world is largely peaceful. That's what Reagan did, peace through strength. Right now, we don't have a lot of strength in this country uh, from a political perspective, uh, our military is depleted. We are having a hard time recruiting, but that's on our own failed radical ideology. That's a cancer in this country. It's a cancer across this globe, but it's a wake-up call. I read an interesting piece tonight about a progressive Jew who went public, wrote an op-ed, said before he was all in bed with the progressive ideology about shaking hands, 
uh, with the terrorists in essence. That's more of a figure of speech. But here in this country, he was here, he was in bed with uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, other radical organizations. And he has finally had a literal come to Jesus moment where he says, you know what? I was wrong. And he was wrong. And I'm glad to see this. And I hope other Jews in this country are as well, because your country needs you to go fight. We don't need to put any American boots on the ground out there. You guys are going to do just fine. But guess what? Just like Britain facing off against Nazi Germany, Israel's going to continue to need our military supplies. The Iron Dome, the tanks, the ammunition, and yes, intelligence. All of those are critical uh, to their push forward. Who knows where we're going to go? So look, Hamas is a terrorist organization, but it's also a evil and resilient monster. It's that monster in the terror movies. So to understand how to best fight evil, let's turn to Iraq during 2008 during the surge. The surge was a very pivotal period for coalition forces in Iraq. You know, many thought that Al-Qaeda was winning as American soldiers were getting killed in very high numbers. Hence, American forces for surged forces into Iraq in an attempt to turn the tide. And I was there. I went forward in 2008, uh, deployed with our special operation forces as a intelligence officer, working with some of the most remarkable uh, men and women that I've ever had the pleasure of serving with in a battle where at the moment it felt very different, like we could have been losing that and, and having to vacate. So the surge happened and we surged forces, intelligence, and under remarkable leadership, I'll tell you, uh, General Stanley McChrystal did an amazing job. I had a chance to learn under him and watch him. Uh, Stanley McChrystal, just a phenomenal retired general today. Um, and uh, just leadership, critical to what uh, what we need today. Uh, I then had a chance to work under Admiral uh, McRaven and watched him take over um, from McChrystal and just watch the tempo carry on a handoff from army to Navy, but it's joint forces all working together. And guess what? Great things were happening, um, from that surge against the enemy. Yes. Horrific loss still of Americans, our coalition forces and innocent people, but you could see that the tide was turning surge absolutely had a tremendous impact going forward. And, you know, many thought that Al-Qaeda was, was winning this. They really did. And, and I think that um, had we not surged and vacated, that would have been a hell basket for terrorism. And quite honestly, uh, it, it may well be again, and maybe that's the biblical part of this. But we largely don't have a presence there. We vacated Afghanistan, which was an embarrassing and horrific withdrawal of retreat and also countless Americans killed. Just disgusting. So here we are today. Uh, watching Israel uh, and their innocents get slaughtered um, by radical terrorists. So let's let's think a little bit about this strategy that I'm going to go into. Uh, my dissertation work was on organizational resiliency of basically looking at sinister organizations. How do they survive and continue to adapt and grow? Um, and that's what Al Qaeda was doing in Iraq. And I'll tell you what, that's what Hamas has done. And uh, just uh, amazing in how they were able to keep this largely such a secret without even the tentacles of intelligence nodes that typically would have been picked up on. And I'm sure we'll learn much more about uh, these intelligence failures down the road because we have to, we have to. Um, but look, so, you know, I was there in Iraq 
and I had a chance to develop a strategy on how to dismantle uh, uh, AQI or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, and it's published, and I was able to get it unclassified. And you could probably Google it and find it, uh, Al-Qaeda strategy uh, in Iraq, 2008, largely based on my dissertation work. So U.S. and coalition forces and Iraqi forces, they were making great progress in, co in combating Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as we call them AQI back then, by severely damaging and limiting its operational potential. However, despite all the best efforts, though, AQI had adjusted. They were able to adjust to internal and external pressures, and they remained a significant threat in the region, as well as the national security across the globe. But look, Hamas is no different than Al-Qaeda, no different than ISIS, or any other sophisticated evil the world has ever seen, period. Now, AQI fits the academic definition of a resilient organization. Now, Al-Qaeda is still around, right? We're talking about Hamas, just change the names. So when you think about these sinister organizations, they are aware of their challenges. Uh, they continue to make sense of their environment. They learn from failure. They adjust to difficulties. And from that, they it's created or they, uh, they, they, they basically build in these resiliency characteristics that sustain themselves in what I describe as a resiliency cycle. So if U.S. and coalition and Iraqi uh, forces, you know, you think about them working together, applying pressure on AQI, but like in the horror movies, they reconstitute themselves with a vengeance. So... The goal here is to understand that we should never leave evil, even though it appears decimated or dead, alone. You've got to have eyes on target consistently. So, you know, from this, my strategy proposed, and it still does, it doesn't change, it has not changed, is you simultaneously attack each of the enemy's resiliency characteristics by your assets, which are best suited for that mission. So as such... You look at the enemy, it's going to shrink, right? We're never going to completely eliminate it. But by correctly aligning ourselves and going after the resiliency characteristics, we're going to shrink uh, our enemy or the enemies. It's like applying pressure to all sides of a balloon at the same time. Then you got to measure your results. You've got to evaluate them. you got to reassess and then refocus. Uh, the process of attacking the resiliency characteristics begins again, right? So it's like peeling back the layers of an onion, thereby shrinking the organization as you go through this process of washing over and over and over again. It just repeats itself. So eventually the enemy will be so severely shrunk and damaged, like we saw in Iraq, like we saw in Afghanistan until we took our foot off. Say so it's so severely shrunk and damaged that it is but remnants compared to its previous strength. And it's at this stage that it's at its weakest form and susceptible to near organizational failure. But we don't want to have a false start or a false sense of security that just because the enemy is on its knees, again, that it is done, never. We have always got to stay on target. So I really feel like this strategy can be a blueprint for fighting all terrorist organizations. That when you think about this, such evil must either adapt to pressures 
or it's going to collapse upon itself like a dying star. So those organizations that are able to sustain despite such pressure and survive exhibit resiliency and therefore contain resiliency characteristics. It's these resiliency characteristics that we've got to focus on. This is where our efforts, everything that we bring to bear, has got to be brought forward here, focusing on nothing else but the core of these resiliency characteristics to bring about the near destruction of these evil organizations. It's got to be precise. It's a focused strategy requiring leadership, resources, and honestly, and I think most importantly, patience, and then will, the will to fight and stay on target. So let's examine the typical resiliency characteristics of evil that I found through extensive research and doctoral studies, of writing a book and speaking around the country on this. That, you know, and, and these aren't in any particular order, um, but there's largely you know 16, if you will. And uh, to get in the nuts and bolts of this, I think from an academic perspective is very eye-opening. So the first one is reputation. You know, these sinister organizations have a reputation for brutality. They're very successful in their attacks on police, government, revenge killings, witness victim intimidation. They create a community of fear. That reputation is a resiliency characteristic. Their ideology and the related components or uh, religious fanaticism um, in AQI, Al-Qaeda, you know, the caliphate, just thinking about their ultimate destiny of their own or Hamas wanting to destroy Israel off the face of the earth, which is largely now this radical ideology. Another one is patience, right? I mentioned we have to have patience. Hey, they've got patience. Uh, in Afghanistan, the enemy there would point to their watches because they've got time on their hands. And we need to understand that the enemy understands that. Sometimes better than we do because we're so quick at wanting results. Patience, how long do you think Hamas trained for this? They train one day and go out the next day? No. This was an operation that took them a lot of time and it required their absolute patience. Cultural advantage. So look, you know, they're operating in areas where the population is largely sympathetic to them. You're never going to see Hamas or Al-Qaeda have a stronghold in our country, although God forbid, probably areas around Minneapolis or our college campuses are starting to look like it, right? But for the most part, in America, you're not going to see this because you don't have a community sympathetic to evil. But in areas where AQI, ISIS, and others, certainly they are destroying and harming good people that are there. But for the most part, the society is afraid or they feel like they have, um, that they're part of the culture's cultural norm in there. Um, oftentimes, Evil will provide food and rations and even health care and jobs. Um, foreign fighters that came in to fight for Al-Qaeda in Iraq were fighting for money. Once we were able to target that money and foreign fighters no longer were paid, guess what? They went home. So this cultural advantage about operating on your own battlefield absolutely is a characteristic of resiliency. Next one is corruption, which speaks for itself. You know, bribery, blackmail, they don't follow the rules. Uh, they're going to do whatever they can. Um, the next one is business acumen. Think about a Fortune 500 company. These organizations have accountants, have media affairs, public affairs. I mean, it, it is remarkable when you look at how well they have orchestrated their leadership team. Very, very impressive. And so we have to understand we're not up against a, 
back alley gang of thugs. No, uh, and not at all. And to pull off the operations that they had in Iraq, Afghanistan, and now in Israel requires this strong leadership structure and related components, the ability to organize the operational structure, centralized leadership, decentralized lower structures, very much aggressive in growth. They have accountability. They do leadership development, financial strength. Yeah, let's talk about the money and the billions of dollars that the United States basically helped give back to Iran, which funds Hamas. What a train wreck. So yes, uh, they possess the characteristics of a company that wants to make a profit. Next one is situational awareness and related components. They have intelligence collection and counterintelligence activities. They uh, reduce their visibility when needed. They use deception tactics. Uh, they might infiltrate legitimate businesses or governments. And they are very attentive to minor details. Very diligent. Next one is recruitment. They're able to quickly replenish their ranks. They may have high salaries, legitimate work, right? This is all based on money. They've got to buy guns and bullets and trucks and paragliders, whatever the hell else they used uh, to attack the innocent. Think about it. It is about recruiting and retaining. And from that, the finances, the business acumen is critical, but that recruitment, you've got to have the numbers. I think over a thousand surged into Israel uh, from Hamas. They build this large organizational membership. Uh, and it doesn't really matter if they're educated, uneducated. It's about bringing them into the ideology. They'll look for the poor, the demoralized, whatever it may be, and they will give them a skill set and a mission. As you know, these folks will literally blow themselves up for it. Next one's adaptability. That's really the uh, opera. You've, you've got to be, you can't be like a stick, right? Uh, which can break. You got to be like a rubber band and adapt to circumstances. And so they understand this and they're always preparing for one thing and one thing only just like drug cartels do. And that's failure. So like drug cartels, very resilient organization, organized crime. You don't put all your drugs into one van and hopes it come across. No, they got submarines. They use paragliders, tunnels. Same thing here with the adaptability and what they use here to be able to spread their te te tentacles. Very opportunistic. Uh, very creative. Uh, they're able to reform and redeploy. Highly, highly mobile. Next one is monopoly goal-oriented. So they have control over their operations. They will literally kill their competitors or those not agreeing with their evil philosophy. They have geographic control. And they'll infiltrate even legitimate trade lines. It's how they can make their money. Real estate uh, is a big one here in our country. Uh, in Iraq, you would see the um, uh, Al-Qaeda skimming money out of the Beijing oil refinery, trucks, and and so forth. So, you know, they get into this uh, where they'll infiltrate, just like the mob did here. And part of being able to attack uh, and go after these organizations is the unsexy part of law enforcement. And yeah, it is law enforcement. It's an investigative tool. Remember, who caught Al Capone? It was an accountant. So you follow the money. You look at where the money is coming from. You can get that money out of their hands. You shrink. You don't eliminate, but you shrink a lot of their ability of what they can do. Another one is trust. So look, they have really no trust of outsiders, right? You don't want to lose your uh, intel. 
Uh, but high family trust and, and a very high sense of self-reliance. So they've got to know who they can trust and who they cannot trust. When you look at the case study going forward and what Hamas did with large numbers of people knowing about this and our allies from Israeli intelligence to even our intelligence, um, how this was missed is, is uh, shocking, but it goes to the core of these resiliency characteristics. Next one is compartmentalization. Uh, what this basically means is that the uh, evil doesn't put all their eggs into one basket, right? Like, so for example, when we would capture in Iraq um, uh, a, a, a node of terror terrorists, well, they don't really know the higher ups, but they know what their particular mission is. So there's only so much intel we can get off of that particular component. Because what you want to do is figure out, you know, you want to keep flipping them as we do in law enforcement. You catch a low-level drug dealer, they give up the next person, next, and pretty soon you know who's at the top of the chain. Well, terror networks understand this because they're always preparing for what? Failure. So they compartmentalize their operations. Therefore, if a node is taken out, it won't take down all the other nodes or let alone the higher ups. We've got an ability to somehow break that uh, at times, especially with... Um, intelligence gathering of uh, various communication techniques or um, human collection that can be helpful as well. Look, uh, optimism is a resiliency characteristic. You know, they, the enemy, the evil, they feel a sense of entitlement, right? Like Hamas feels like they are entitled to their own, that Israel shouldn't be here. What the hell are they doing here? So they, they have this positive sense of entitlement and confidence, right? And right now, the confidence of, uh, of evil around the globe watching what they pulled off in Israel right now is very high, which, which makes the entire world more dangerous right now because people say, look, if, if Hamas can pull this off against Israel, well, then maybe we can too, whoever that, that we is. So that sense of optimism right now is flowing in the veins of evil and it's being portrayed in our college campuses and some big cities and, and other countries as well. And then they get legitimacy. Right? They get they get a sense of legitimacy from the public. So when Hamas, ISIS, whoever it is, sees these sympathizers in our own country, other countries, it only builds their own optimism. So shame on our own people for counting the enemy's flag. Technology. Technology is critical. Uh, you can't really do much today without it. And as we know, Hamas and others, they have communications and the speed of communications and a global network and the use of media, as you saw through the filming and the messaging of what they do. Next one is loyalty. You know, they have internal discipline and obedience and absolute control over personnel. Uh, you may hear a lot more of it here in America based uh, on the drug cartels, which behead and torture all the time in Mexico. Well, all these evil organizations do. Think about the mob and Al Capone and the baseball bat uh, situation. These things happen and they expect loyalty. So it's a resiliency characteristic. Um, financially independent. Well, when you look at them, they are able to bring in the funds to operate on their own. And the cue here is they're able to bring in money. I've talked a little bit about this in multiple portions tonight. So I'm not going to continue to go down the financial part of this, but as a standalone, for them to be financially independent is a characteristic of resiliency and also helps isolate and protect them from leakage. So like all these resiliency characteristics result from a culmination of archival review and, and data, um, 
which I spent years and years upon doing to boil these down for you in a dissertation, in a book, in a strategy. Uh, these characteristics sustain the organization during significant pressure to collapse, but also remain during regular operational times when no such force exists. So that although these characteristics are highlighted here, it's really vital for you as the reader, the listener, to remember that multiple additional strengths make up several of these resiliency characteristics. That the generalizing and narrowing down the finest elements was really an essential component of the work that I've done to boil this down, to try to make this um, as quick and as simple as a listen or a read as it can be. Organizational resiliency, remember, it prevents organizational failure. That's the bottom line, which why it makes sense to focus on the resiliency characteristics to do the best we can to get our enemy to near failure point. The organization can learn, though, from failure and apply methods to counter or limit its vulnerabilities. That's what makes them actually better operators than legitimate businesses because they're always preparing for failure. So they're building in these capabilities of strength and redundancy. Organizational resiliency, it's not an end state, but rather an evolutionary and at times a revolutionary cycle that allows an organization to better itself based on its ability to apply new learnings to its quote-unquote business. Organizational resiliency, though, as it turns out, is you know, really not a, an applied technique, uh, but is instead what one can define an organization as having obtained after demonstrating its ability to fight back, quote-unquote, learn, right? Learn and adapt to prevent catastrophic failure. That is the nail on the head. So organizational resiliency is achieved only through several phases described in this resiliency framework, which I know you can't see here, but I do describe it uh, in my book and have a diagram. Organizational resiliency does not prevent corporate failure, uh, but rather organizational resiliency is the phase reached by implementing any number of resiliency characteristics that evil becomes resilient against several efforts to destroy it, although several good actions have severely impacted evil, that from each of these efforts, the organization's leadership learned how to adapt and implement the necessary change to survive. That it is more accurate to describe the role that organizational resiliency plays within the evil network by examining episodes of organizational hardship and the actions taken by evil. So therefore, organizational resiliency does not prevent failure. Instead, it's a concept used to describe organizations like evil that can survive any number of actions and practices by not failing when extreme conditions present a likelihood of, here's the word, organizational failure. So organizational resiliency can really best be described and, under, and understood through the lens of you and I, just as human beings. Resilient human beings bounce back time and again from significant hardship. And research shows that Amongst age groups, kids, children are more resilient than grown adults. And just hardwired. Things happen in life, but kids are very, very resilient. 
So think about this you know, and, and how that applies to organizations. Certainly people are, but guess what? So do organizations. You got to look at organizations as a living being adapting. All right. So they take actions that lead to their resiliency. These actions for both human beings and organizations are the very essence of resiliency. So to best fight evil, you know, here's what I recommend. You align our resources against those 16, on average, 16 resiliency characteristics. And, a, and, a, and you want to, you know, obviously gauge it for, 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 for progress, um, but you've got to think that there are these external factors that are floating around as these bubbles in these environments of evil. And that is two, two really important nodes here to pay attention to. That evil really can survive and develop these re resiliency characteristics in a region, in a territory, or a community where these next two conditions exist. Number one is diminished societal rule of law. Basically corruption, like in Mexico, the cops are on the take, drug cartels can thrive. So wherever there is a lack of societal rule of law, that is important to allowing these organizations to develop their resiliency. The next one is really a popular support of evil. Now, evil will, will pay local villagers, will do different things like the Robin Hood effect. When you have your local population um, supporting them, it's an important factor to them developing and sustaining their future. So what we got to do, though, is we got to measure. Every time we work to, dis to uh, diminish the resiliency characteristics, we got to measure our success. In the federal government, we call these PMEs or performance measures of effectiveness. Periodically, we've got to do this to update the public on progress and adjust to the changing behavior of evil because it's going to attempt to adapt to pressure. And through each good cycle, and, and I, I am leaving out a huge gap here, and that is, you know, for example, when you think Israel to go after Hamas and to stay on them now, they've got to focus on largely these resiliency characteristics. And each one is a separate strategy, a set aside of how you do that, uh, which I don't go into here. It would take hours, but there are resources and ways and methods of what and how to make this happen. And just for fun, you could think about it yourself. Like when you think about, um, you know, how you want to diminish your organization's trust factor, right? Well, in the military, you can use psychological operations. You can it, begin to embed false information into the organization. So they begin to not trust one another. They worry, you know, who is the rat in the house? There's things that can be done to not completely eliminate it, but absolutely minimize to the best of our ability. So with each process, remember you're evaluating the organization, the evil. And from that, it's going to become smaller and smaller, which means it's becoming less of a threat, not a total elimination, but a, a, a close to it. You know, in this model, which I title understanding evils resiliency, it's it. I, I I'm going to try to describe it to you. So organizations, um, they have this, they, this preoccupation with failure. They're very sensitive to their operations. They have a commitment to reliability and um, they have a real reluctance to simplify things. Uh, and from that, it then all funnels down to what we call mindfulness. Mindfulness is being aware. Just being aware of it alone is so critical to the next phase, which takes that organization as it's learning 
into sense making or making sense of what is happening. From this, the organization is learning. This is where this adaptation begins. And of those 16 or so resiliency characteristics, this is where that resiliency and that renewal comes into play. And then they improvise as different things attack them. They improvise, they change, they look at it. And they will go back through that whole process again of the preoccupation with failure, the sensitivity to operations, the reluctance to simplify, the commitment to being you know, reliable. And they go through this time and time again. And from, from this model and from this talk, I know um, I, don't, I don't expect anybody to walk away from this with a complete understanding. What I do want you to walk away from is knowing, knowing that there is a way forward to take on evil in every part of the world. And it's through this kind of a model, by understanding the enemy, understanding what makes them not only tick, but rebound, and then aligning our resources against their resiliency characteristics, and then measuring to see if we are making an impact to diminish those attributes, those characteristics every single time. That, my friends, is our eternal battle against evil, and that is also the name of my book. God bless you all. I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you share this with friends, families, you know, coworkers. I want America and the world to understand the evil that we face, that when, when we understand it from this academic perspective, we can see now from the real world that there are ways forward. It's been proven historically. And the last thing I will tell you on this is um, we are dealing, you can, there's a great book, uh, Starfish and Spider. What, is, what does that mean, right, Paul? Well, Starfish, we're dealing with organizations that don't necessarily have a head. That's what we're up against with these terror networks. The other is a spider network. If you cut off the head, it dies, like Nazi Germany with Hitler, right? So we don't have those kind of battles today. Um, I mean, North Korea, I think if we took out the, the leader, it would collapse. But when we talk about these sophisticated terror networks, criminal enterprises, drug cartels, they are like a starfish. So just because we're cutting off legs, we don't destroy the organization. It's hard to really get at the head. And if you did, I don't know if it would make much of an impact. You just grow another one. In Iraq, we'd often call it cutting grass, right? You're knocking down all these low levels, but they just grow right back. So it is about always staying. Uh, picture yourself in that horror movie, right? And at the end of it, never turn your back. And also when you're at the end of it, don't tell yourself it's the end of it. It is there for as long as we are beating heart to stay on target, uh, to pray, uh, but to fight like hell and, and just to, you know, be angels of grace and, and, and protectors uh, as we have served in our military and law enforcement or whatever capacity we have. And whether you are in one of those capacities or not, just being aware as a citizen of the world we are in, we can actually create a more peaceful, peaceful world while understanding that we all have a job to do and an understanding of what to do and how to support our governments and those that we're putting forward every single day try to keep our communities, our country, and the world safe. All right, God bless you all. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.